0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am so excited to share this conversation with you today. This conversation has been months in the making and it is finally here. Today, I share my conversation with the wildly intelligent and curious Johan Hari. Johan is an internationally best-selling author for his books, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. If you have not read any of Johan's books, I encourage you to get online, buy a book and read it. His books are a work of art. What Johan does is he starts with a question or a series of questions around a topic that he's really curious about, and then spends the next few years researching and talking to people all over the world. And he brings it together in a way that just makes sense. His third book, and the book that has just been released, is Stolen Focus Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. This book will be the biggest book of the year. This is the book that we need to read. Parts of it are hard to read because the issue that we face is so big and yet there is so much potential if we learn how to reclaim our focus. In this book, Johan outlines 12 deep causes of this attention crisis, all of which are robbing us of our attention in every single moment. This book is a work of art and a call to action. In this conversation, we talk about the four types of attention he has uncovered, the impacts of constantly being distracted, the systems that are driving us to distraction, and ways to reclaim our focus, and so much more. A heads up this is an adult conversation and contains adult language. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Johan Hari. Welcome, Johan, to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: I'm so happy to be with you. I cannot tell you how much I wish I was in Australia right now. and ah. not in fucking freezing, miserable Britain. But have uh, I told you about, I don't know if I, I had this Extremely weird experience the first time I went to Australia that has actually made me quite afraid of when I speak to Australians because I love Australia. But so the first time I ever went, I um I spoke at the Sydney Opera House and I was absolutely fucked with jet lag, like just the worst jet lag I've ever had. I was incoherent, right? So I'm standing there and I wanted to make a joke to like warm up with the audience. So I made a really crap joke that led to this horrific turn of events, right? Where I said you know, I'm really happy to be in Australia, but I actually feel quite cheated and disappointed. And you could feel there was a sort of slightly awkward feeling in the audience. And I said, because I was raised by my grandmother, who we would obsessively watch Sons and Daughters and Young and um, and The Young Doctors, right? And I, so this was my complete meant for people who don't know, these were like Tolstoyan masterpieces about Australian life, right? And uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um and I said, so that was my whole mental picture of Australia was sons and daughters, right? So I thought Australia was. And I was like, but I've now been here for 48 hours and I have not been kidnapped and replaced by an identical twin I never knew existed. I feel really cheated, right? Not a very good joke, but it was my way of trying to warm up. But then I said, so the guy who made these series is called Reg Grundy. I said, is Reg Grundy still alive? And someone really in the audience shouted out, yes. And I said, well, God should strike him dead for the way he misrepresented Australia to the world, right? And there was this little slightly awkward look in their faces. Anyway, not very long afterwards, I turn on the television and fucking Reg Grundy died. And I was like, oh my God, do I have the power, like whenever I speak to Australians, to just call for God to strike one of them dead, right? So I was like, so now whenever I speak to Australians, I'm really tempted to say, is Tony Abbott still alive? But obviously I don't. But like, I don't want to test my evil powers, but I'm very tempted nonetheless. Oh, so anyway, wow. I feel like I had this power. Over, I feel like I had this bizarre power over Australia, which I have nowhere else in the world, right? <laughs> but uh but anyway, I'll, I'll never use it again, I promise.
0: <laughs> oh, Johan, I just love the way that you tell stories and you know, I was so excited when I saw on Instagram that you put out the notice that your new book, Stolen Focus, is coming into the world because as soon as I saw that title, I was like, Yeah, where has my focus gone? Who stole it? Where is it? And <laughs> I thought, Oh, I've got Excellent. to talk to Johan about this. And so I'd love to know from you, Johan, how did you get interested in this idea of focus, concentration, attention, and where it's gone?
1: <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, for years, I had this sense, hmm, it seems like most of the people I know, their attention is absolutely going to shit, right? It feels like things are getting worse, really markedly worse quite quickly. I could feel it with myself. I could feel it with other people. And I would see like stray statistics that seem quite striking to me, like um, the average college student now focuses on any one task for 65 seconds. The average office worker now focuses on average on any task For three minutes, I thought, oh, that seems like a quite striking fact. But I also thought, you know, isn't that something every generation worries about, right? You can read monks writing to each other nearly a thousand years ago going, oh, my attention isn't as good as it used to be. I just thought, oh, you know, you get older, your attention gets less good, your attention deteriorates and you blame the deterioration of your own mind on the deterioration of the world, right? So I thought, okay, that must be what's happening. And then there was this moment when I thought, oh, you know what? you need to really look into this." And it was a moment <clears throat> it's a very personal moment. It, but w- so when he was nine years old, my godson Adam, developed this like freakish inten- freakishly intense obsession with Elvis. I never found out why. I think he must have seen him on YouTube or something. But he started like he would walk around like crooning and pelvis jiggling all the all the greats, you know, like "Viva Las Vegas." And it one of the things that made it so cute is he didn't know that this had become like a cheesy cliche. So he was doing it so sincerely, and it kept getting me to tell him the story of Elvis's life, right? And I would I would sort of skip over the end where he, you know, shits himself to death on the toilet. And and at, and one night when I was tucking him in. He said to me, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he said, no, do you really promise? And in the way that you promise to children, knowing that you'll never have to follow through, I was like, yes, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that again until 10 years later when everything had gone wrong. So Adam was 19. He had dropped out of school when he was 15. Um, and and he, he just seemed to spend all his time alternating between WhatsApp, YouTube and porn, right? It was just constantly on a screen and it was like his mind was sort of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, like he had really fragmented. He couldn't, it's like nothing could gain any traction in his mind. And in the decade in which Adam had become a man, this had happened to so many people, it seemed to me, at least from, from the anecdotal experience I had up to that point. And one day I was sitting on the, front of the sofa just behind my laptop, you can't see it, from where we're talking. And he was looking at, he was just staring at his phone and I was staring at my phone and I looked at it and just thought, we can't go on like this. So I, I remembered this moment 10 years before and I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, well, what are you talking about? He couldn't even remember the other's obsession, right? I was like, no, let's go to Graceland. Let's go, let's go. Let's just leave. Let's go uh and i said you know we'll go around the south we'll go on holiday i said there's there's a a condition to this you've got when we go there you can't be on your phone all the time you've got to leave it in the hotel you've got to leave it switched off most of the day and he's like yeah okay let's do it and so we literally two weeks later we took off we went to, to initially to new orleans and when you arrive at the gates of graceland there isn't a guide to show you around anymore The way it works, this is even pre-COVID, the the way it works is you're handed an iPad and uh, you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right, explains where you are. And in every room you go into, there's a, a representation of that room on the iPad, right? So what happens is everyone walks around Graceland just staring at the iPad, like so you've traveled 3000 miles and everyone's just staring at this screen. And I keep trying to make eye contact with people to go like, isn't this funny? Like we're the ones who traveled a really long way and we're actually looking around. And there's finally, I managed to make eye contact with one guy, a Korean guy, but then I realized he'd only taken out the earbuds and looked away from the iPad so that he could take out his phone and take a selfie. So I'm getting more and more tense as I go around. And finally I got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room there. It's like loads of fake plants and stuff. And there was this couple standing next to us, Canadian couple. And the guy turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And she's like, wow. And they start looking and they're swiping back and forth. And I look at this guy. And I just said, yeah, but sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. You could just turn your head because we're actually in the jungle room. You don't have to look at a digital representation of it. Literally, look, look, we're in the jungle room." And this couple uh, clearly thought I was some complete maniac and sort of backed out of the room quite quickly. And I turned to my godson, Adam, to sort of laugh about it. And he was just in a corner of the room staring at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he had just been constantly looking at his phone. He couldn't keep his promise. And I was—I just lost it. I was just like, you know, you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing you miss out. You, you know, you're, you're not being present in your own life. And then all these people are walking past with exactly the same problem. I, I tried to grab his phone out of his hand and he sort of stormed off, understandably. And I didn't see him for the rest of the day. I just wandered around Memphis on my own. And that night I found him in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying next to the swimming pool, which is shaped like a guitar. And he was staring at his phone and he just said in this very low, downbeat way he said i know something's really wrong i just don't know what it is and that's when i thought i need to investigate this so i spent the next three years traveling all over the world interviewing the leading experts in the world about attention and focus and obviously i learned learned a huge amount but that was that was where it really began for me
0: oh there's so much of that story johan that people can resonate with and moments of what is happening when you're at a dinner table and you're looking up and people on your phone or you walk into a cafe and there's more people looking at their screens and looking at each other and this feeling like there's always something that you're missing out on, there's something to swipe. And there's a part in your book, and I'd love to share it, and you highlight this beautifully. You said, it felt like civilization had been covered in itching powder. And we spent our time twitching and twerking our minds, unable to simply give attention to things that matter. And that really highlights what I see and what I experience in myself. So what did you find out? What is attention? What do you, Generally, like what's an understanding of it to kick things off?
1: Yeah, so attention, uh, one of the things I learned actually is that attention is a more complex thing than we think. But the general the kind of fancy definition of attention is your ability to selectively attend to things in your environment so i'm speaking to you from my flat um there's so if if i wanted to i could zoom zone out and i could think okay i can hear the buzzing from my heater over there i can i can of course see all my stuff around me uh you know my phone could be lighting up in the corner over there i've I've moved it slightly so i can't see it um so I'm paying attention to you because I can filter out all of that stuff and I'm homing in on, we're having a conversation. What did she just ask me? She asked me what attention is, right? So attention is generally defined as your ability to selectively attend to something in your environment. And what I learned is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that boost or hinder attention. And a lot of those factors have been really significantly deteriorating. Over the last few years, the last decade or so. Some of them have actually been increasing for a lot longer than that, or deteriorating for a lot longer than that. And and I realised, actually, we have to think about attention in a much more complex way, because there's all these factors. In fact, tech is only one of those factors. And I was surprised. I don't think it's the biggest, actually. I think there are even bigger factors that are playing out around us than tech. And even the debate about tech is more complicated. It's not the existence of the tech itself. It's actually something, uh, it, it's more related to, the, I'm sure we'll explore this, the business model of the tech that currently exists, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Um. So yeah, it was just realising, oh, we need to think about this in a, a more complicated way. In terms of what attention is, though, there's been a really, I actually expanded my sense of what attention is to think about it in this more complex way this person who really helped me to do this an amazing guy called dr james williams he was a a senior engineer at google for a long time became very uncomfortable with what they were doing to the world he actually had this moment he was speaking at a tech conference with lots of people who designed the technological world in which we now live and he asked the audience if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world we're designing please put up your hand and nobody put up their hand. So James quit. He subsequently become one of the most important philosophers of attention in the world at the moment. And I went to interview him in Moscow, in Russia. He lives there because his wife uh, works for the World Health Organization. And, and James explained to me that actually there's three kinds of attention. Actually, after speaking to him, I think there's four. I'll come back to that. But that, that helps think of. So the first one, the first form of attention is what you might call your spotlight, Right. So your spotlight is your ability to do an immediate task, right? So let's say you wanted to read a, you know, read a bit of a book this afternoon. You want to tidy your house. You want to spend an hour uninterrupted with your child, or even something simpler. I want to go to the fridge and get a Diet Coke, whatever it might be, right? That's your spotlight. It's your spotlight because it's where um, you home in on one thing. So clearly our spotlight is being disrupted, right? We're all being interrupted a huge amount. We can come back to all the different ways there are, but it's clear that our spotlight is being disrupted. The second layer of attention is what he calls our starlight, which is your longer term goals in life. So not, you know, I want to go to the fridge or I want to read this book, but let's say I want to set up a business. I want to be a good dad. Um, I want to, I want to write a book whatever it might be. That's a medium to longer term goal, right? And you can, it's called the starlight because when you're lost in the desert, you look up at the stars and you remember what direction you're heading in, right? So you can see how our starlight is being disrupted. If you're constantly distracted, if you're constantly disrupted, if your head is jammed up and jammed up, you lose your you lose your ability to achieve longer term goals or they certainly, they become much harder. The third kind of attention It's called our day is what he calls our daylight. And that's a more subtle thing. That's, that's how you know what you even want your goals to be in the first place. Right? So, you know, you might want to set up a business. How do you know you want to set up a business? How do you know what it means to be a good dad? How do you know what you want to write a book about? It's called daylight because it's when a room is flooded with daylight that you can see clearly and a life that is dissolved into 65 second and three minute kind of hailstorm of tiny little fragments of attention. If, if that's how you live your life, you lose your ability to actually even think about who, what your goals are. You lose your ability to, well, who do you want to be? You lose your sense of self. And I would argue there's a fourth, and I know James would agree with this because I talked to him about it. There's a fourth layer of attention which I would call our stadium lights. And that's our ability to see each other and to formulate goals together, right? And I think that is breaking down as well. Um, As you see from the fact that, you know, what could be a more urgent threat to Australia than the climate crisis? You know, people don't need me to remind them about the Black Summer. The place burned down, right? That You know, the the three billion animals burned to death or had to flee. Again, I know your listeners don't need me to remind you of the, the nightmare that happened. Even after that, Australia isn't dealing with the climate crisis, right? A country for whom the stakes could not be clearer, and this will happen again and again if we don't deal with this. And in fact, that will just be an early harbinger of what's to come if we don't deal with it. But because, I mean, there's many reasons we're not dealing with climate change, of course, but I think one of the reasons is a species of people who've lost their superpower, their ability to focus and pay attention, will not be able to formulate individual goals or collective goals, we won't be able to think in sane and rational ways. So, I, I mean, that's a very long answer to your question, but I think those are some of the forms of attention that we have.
0: Oh, that makes so much sense. And there's a part of me that's quite hopeful in the sense if if we can work towards reclaiming the different layers of attention, we can collaborate to work on some really big and pressing issues However, there's another part of me that's really fearful that if individuals are so lost in their own lives, lost in the distraction of life and trying to or struggling to navigate their own lives, how can we then navigate as a collective? And so this is why it's the issue of our time. Like it's not just about reclaiming attention and focus for our individuals. Like that's great, but it's also about being able to reclaim it for ourselves for each other to lead ourselves to a different future because the one that we're creating for ourselves is not ideal, I don't think. So what do you see as the significant impacts if we don't make a change, if we don't answer this call to action?
1: Yeah. Well, the, so my biggest worry is that this could be like the obesity crisis so if you look at a picture of a beach in Australia or Britain in 1970, it's really shocking when you see them now, because everyone is what we would now call slim or buff, right? Nobody is what we would call fat. No one, right? And it seems really jarring. You're like, well, where where did all those people go? And if you look at the statistics, almost nobody was obese in 1970, right? Now, what happened? There was a profound change in the way we live. Our entire food supply system changed in ways that's had a big effect on our attention in a way we can talk about. Also, it's just an obvious effect on our bodies, right? The average American has gained 24 pounds since 1961. Um, So a profound change in the food supply system. We went from eating almost entirely fresh and nutritious food to eating predominantly ultra processed food or processed food, which is completely different, a completely different thing. Right. And the way our cities work completely changed. So it's very hard to walk and bike anywhere. And we sort of have to drive everywhere. Right. So you had these profound changes. One of the reasons we know this is some places didn't make that change as much like the Netherlands and they have vastly less obesity. And I went to interview this guy called Professor Joel Nigg, who is um, one of the leading experts in the world on children's attention. He's in Portland in Oregon. And he said to me, you know, he drew that analogy to me and he said, it may be that we're now living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, which is an environment where deep focus is is getting harder for everyone. And things like reading a book that require deep focus with each year that pass will feel more and more like running up a down escalator. Some of us can still do it, but it's going to get harder and harder. And the danger is that my fear is that we will react to the attention crisis the way we've reacted to the obesity crisis which is the obesity crisis was overwhelmingly caused by big social forces right but what we did and i include myself as a fat person in this um there's literally a i go in the corner of that room um corner of this room um what what we did is responded to a social crisis by blaming ourselves as individuals by saying i'm lazy i'm greedy i'm not good enough and torturing ourselves right if all the energy that had been put into into that had been put into pressuring, uh, uh, building a movement to pressure our leaders to actually make it make fresh, nutritious food the norm, and having cities that we can walk and bike around, we would have actually dealt with the obesity crisis instead of this futile form of torture. And it's why, with all the twelve causes of the tension crisis that I write about in Stolen Focus, there's two levels of solutions, right? There are things we can do as isolated individuals. There's lots of things we can do. I talk about them. I do all of most of them and they've really boosted my attention, but we've got to be honest with people that will get you some of the way there, but it probably won't solve the problem for you. And it certainly won't solve the problem for the society. For those things, we need, bigger social solutions to deal with the invasion of our attention. So I give you a very small, because that can sound a bit weird to people because it took me a while to get my head around it. So I give you a very simple, straightforward solution of one that I've seen in practice. So um, in France in 2018, they had a really big crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. Um, and the French government, under pressure from the trade unions, set up a commission to figure out what was going on and they put in charge of it a man named Bruno Metling who's the head of Orange which is their biggest telecoms company one of their biggest and he looked at lots of things but one of the things he discovered was really devastating people's attention and focus was that 35% of French workers felt they could never turn off their phone or stop checking email because their boss could email them at any time of the day or night and if they didn't respond they would be in trouble right so the French so Metling proposed, and the French government introduced um, what is a very simple thing. It's called the right to disconnect. is a legal right. It just says two things: you have a legal right to have your work hours written down and defined, and you have a legal right outside work hours to not have to check your phone and your email. So I went to Paris, talked to a lot of people about this. Big companies now get fined, really big fines, if they try to get workers to check their their phone or email. Out of workouts. Now you can just see how that's a collective change that frees up individuals to to start to heal their attention. Because to me, there's no point giving people sweet self-help lectures about you'll feel much better if you unplug. You'll feel better if you do this and that. If people literally can't do it, right? Uh, it's like going up to a homeless person, you know, uh, and saying to them, "Do you know what, mate? You know, what would make you feel much better. Would be if you uh, went into that fancy restaurant over there and had a really nice meal. Why don't you do that?" right the homeless guy is going to go to you well i can't do that right so we've got to deal with the underlying we've got to deal both at the individual and the collective level and often dealing with it at the collective level makes it possible for people to deal with it at the individual level
0: oh i love that distinction you're making there around the individual and the collective and the example that's coming to my mind is a lot of the educators that i work with they feel this need to be constantly checking their emails and in Connection and responding to parents and emails can come at all times, seven days a week. You know, I remember as an educator, I'd get an email. I wouldn't receive it because we be asleep, but it would come in at 11 o'clock and it's about what's happened for their daughter or son that day and trying to work through that. And so there's a part there where the individual can say, I'm going to not check after six. You know, they can do that. That's a part. But how much power if the school says you have a right to disconnect? you know, you do not, you're not expected to, because it's hard if one colleague is always responding and then you're getting the CC on that and then you're not responding. And so I love that idea of, yes, there are things that we can do as an individual and there is part of the system here that we need to come together and have some really clear discussions and guidelines.
1: But I think what you're saying is so important because think about how important it is that that was done at the level of the whole society, right? Because let's say even your school says to the individual teachers, you know what? You'd have to check your email after six o'clock. You're still living in a society where there's an expectation from the parent that they're going to get back. Whereas actually, if the parent knows, oh, I've got a right to disconnect. The teacher's got a right to disconnect. Actually, and part of that is about explaining to people how much damage these interruptions do to us. And I was surprised by the evidence about how bad it is. I to interview a man named Professor Earl Miller. He's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. He's at MIT in the US at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he said to me, look, you have to understand one crucial thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one thing at a time. That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. Ain't going to change anytime soon. You can only think about one thing, but what's happened is we've convinced ourselves so the average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time but when you get people into labs as professor miller's colleagues have and you test them and they think they're doing lots of things at the same time what you discover is in fact they're juggling right your consciousness papers over it you don't realize it but you're juggling so let's say while i was talking to you now um i saw a text message came in and i just glanced at it you think oh that takes a second I glance back at you. It feels like, oh, that was only a second. But it turns out what happens is when I look at the text message, I see, oh, my friend Rob's messaged me. Oh, his mom's got out of hospital. Right. I have to refocus on the text. Then I have to come back to you to refocus. Wait, what, what did Meg just say to me again? What was she asking? Oh, right. Okay. Now imagine I then go, oh, and what was my Facebook? And what was what's happening on the TV over there? And what's my... So this incurs a series of costs. It's The fancy term for it is the switch cost effect. And it turns out this is a really significant effect. If you are interrupted, it takes on average 23 minutes for you to get back the same level of focus that you had before the interruption, even if the interruption is as small as a text message. And there've been a series of studies that have looked at this, which I think it's really important for people to to get their heads around. It took me a long time to get my head around it. I'll give you two examples just quickly. Hewlett Packard, the company that make printers, ones that always jam up in my experience, but anyway, uh, they did a study where they took a small group of their workers and they split them into two groups and the first group was just told, "Do your work, you're not going to be interrupted." and the second group was told, uh, "Do your work but they interrupted them with a heavy amount of emails and text messages. And then at the end of it, they text they tested the IQ of these two groups. the group that had not been interrupted scored 10 points higher on iq tests than the group that been interrupted so to give you a sense of how big that effect is if you or me sat together and smoked a spliff now and got stoned it would our iq would lower by five points so you it's double the effect of getting stoned so you'd be better off sitting at your desk smoking a fat spliff and doing one thing at a time than you would sitting at your desk not smoking cannabis and being constantly interrupted with texts and emails, right? Or another study, um, Carnegie, Mellon, at Carnegie Mellon University, mm-hmm. they took 138 students and they split them into two groups. Uh, what They both were given the same exam. The first group was told, do the exam in normal exam conditions. The second group was told, you can receive text messages and send text messages if you want. Now, you'd think the second group would do better because they could have cheated, right? In fact, the second group, the group that received texts, did on average 20% worse. Now, it seems to me that we are all losing that 20% of our mental bandwidth pretty much all all the time now, right? So it's about explaining to say you're a teacher and the parent expects to reply at 10 10 p.m. And and they think, oh, I'm sending you an email that will take you one minute to read and it will take you one minute to reply. No, because it takes 23 minutes for me to refocus after that. And if I'm constantly exhausted and stressed out, actually my my mental power never gets to its full capacity. So you think you're taking one minute. In fact, if you're being constantly interrupted throughout the day, you're taking 20% of my entire mental power. That's a huge amount to be taking from people. We've got to insulate and protect ourselves from this. So some of that's individual, some of that's collective. There's lots of other ways, collective ways as well.
0: Oh, and what's coming to my mind is, you know, most people look at their screen time and think, oh, gee, like that's really out of control. But what you're highlighting here is that's just the beginning of the story. If it's It's four hours, that's actually much worse than that. Add on a bit more for all of the missed time.
1: Exactly. That's the, the, the thing that's really sobering. If you had four hours of screen time but that was distributed throughout the day you've lost vastly more hours than that in your focus, attention and ability to concentrate. Right. So, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This is much deeper. And I think one aspect of that, I mean, there's so many aspects of this we could talk about. And obviously I go through a lot in the book, but it's also worth thinking about the fact that think about email um, or social media, that because of the current business model, and that sounds a bit odd. We can explain that. these, um apps these programs we use are designed to maximally interrupt us so i interviewed tristan harris who's a brilliant uh uh, brilliant engineer and designer who worked for google for many years and then was so uncomfortable with what they were doing that he quit and has been trying to alert the world to what's really going on and tristan told me about this moment that's really chilled me he was working on gmail quite early And the Gmail team were trying to figure out how to get people to use Gmail more, and importantly, more often. I'll explain why in a little while. And one of his colleagues one day just had an idea. He said, why don't we make it so that whenever anyone gets an email from Gmail, their phone vibrates a little bit? And everyone said, oh, that's a good idea. And a week later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco, and he just hears all these little vibrations everywhere, this buzzing. And he suddenly realizes, shit, we did that. He did the sums about, I think it was about a year and a half later. He figured out they were causing at that time 11 billion interruptions to people's day across the world. 11 billion, right? And it's actually significantly more than that now because that was years ago. So we're we're living in an infrastructure that has been maximally designed to interrupt and distract us, right? Now the, there are solutions to that, but, it, but the first step, and, and which are about changing the business model, which I can talk about, but it's about understanding, again, that we're so we're so inclined when these things happen to blame ourselves. I'm not good enough, I'm weak, I'm being lazy, I'm not disciplined enough. And it's important to say to people, your attention didn't collapse your attention was stolen from you by very powerful forces, which include tech and some aspects of tech and go way beyond tech, because that creates a completely different disposition towards the problem, right? Don't be angry at yourself. You can do things to protect yourself as an individual, but most importantly, be angry at the fuckers who've done this to us and let's take them on. At the moment, it's like we're all being covered by itching powder and the people pouring itching powder on us are going... You know, you might want to uh, you might want to learn how to meditate. You wouldn't scratch so much then. And I'm going to go. All right, mate. I'll learn to meditate. Very helpful. I'm in favour of it. When you stop pouring itching powder over me, right? <laughs> like that. You know. So we we've, we've got to stop the forces that are doing this to us.
0: Ah, oh, yes. You know that idea of feeling like, oh, I can't believe I can't get this together. Why can't I switch off? Why can't I do this? And then having that step back to think, well, there are some really smart people working really, really hard to gain our attention for this business model. So I'd love for you to explain that a bit more.
1: Yeah, there were lots of ways this was explained to me when I interviewed sort of people in Silicon Valley. And there was one moment it really fell into place for me, and it seems like in some ways quite a trivial moment. Tristan Harris said to me, you open Facebook now, it'll tell you loads of things, right? <laughs> it'll say, you know, whose birthday it is. It'll show you if someone tagged you in a photo. It'll uh, it'll tell you what you were saying on the same day, 10 years before, all sorts of things. There's one thing it won't do. There's no button on Facebook that says, I'd like to meet up with my friends. Is anyone nearby and wants to meet up? Right? That'd be a very helpful button. Not at all hard to design. Very technologically easy. I'm pretty sure everyone listening is thinking, oh, I'd really like that. That'd be really helpful, right? Why doesn't that button exist? Given it would be popular, given that Facebook's u- Facebook's users would really like it, why doesn't Facebook provide it? If you follow the, the trail from that question, I think you begin to understand a lot of what's being done to our attention and why, and most importantly, how we can begin to get it back. When you open Facebook, Facebook starts to make money, and there's two ways they do it. The first is really obvious. Um, you see ads, right? You scroll down and you see ads. We all know how that works. You don't know, need me to explain it. Second way is more subtle and much more important. Everything you do on Facebook is scanned and sorted by Facebook. So let's say that you click that you like Kylie, Pauline Hansen, and you say to your mum that you've just bought some nappies on uh, private messenger, right? Okay, so Facebook is going to figure out Okay, you're, you're probably a gay man. I mean, lots of people like Kylie, but in Britain, it's probably gay men because uh, you like Kylie. Uh, you're probably right wing because you like Pauline Hansen, And you've probably got a baby because you were talking about nappies, right? So it's building up this complex profile of you. It's learning who you are. It's learning very subtle things about your taste. Imagine tens of thousands of facts like that, how complicated a picture they can build up of you. It then sells that picture to advertisers so they can target you specifically. If I make, if I'm trying to sell nappies, you don't want to advertise to me. Johan, I don't have a baby, right? They want to market to you. You've got a baby, right? So it's all about building up the most detailed. You are the product that they are selling to the advertiser, right? So building up information about you. Once you understand that those are the two ways Facebook makes money, you can understand why there's no button that says, how which of my friends want to meet up now? Because if you push that button and find out, oh, Kathy's around the corner, she wants to meet up, we'll go for a coffee. You would both close Facebook, look into each other's eyes and have a coffee. As far as Facebook's concerned, that's a disaster, right? Every time you close Facebook, they lose money. Every time you open it, they make money. And this isn't some kind of mad conspiracy theory. This is what Facebook themselves say. Sean Parker, one of the the key initial investor in Facebook, one of the one of the handful of the key initial investors, said, "We designed it to maximally take people's attention. We knew what we were doing, and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains." Right? That's what he said. We've got now got lots of um, leaked internal memos from Facebook with similarly shocking information. So, what that means is that business model which is there's lots of other business models they can have, but what that business model means is that all of their engineers, all of the algorithms, everything they do is designed for one purpose. How do we keep you scrolling? How do we maximally invade your attention and how do we keep it scrolling? So they've developed all sorts of techniques that are designed how to do that. We can talk about lots of them if you like, but the most important thing about that is to say social media doesn't have to work that way there's an analogy you know you you might remember meg some of us will remember i sort of have a vague memory from my childhood um it used to be that lots of people painted their house with lead paint and lots of people drove cars that had leaded petrol right i can remember the smell of leaded petrol from when i was a kid and then it was discovered that leaded petrol really fucks up your ability to focus. breathing in lead in any form really fucks up your ability to focus and pay attention. It's disastrous for your brain. It damages your attention, your focus, actually even makes you more likely to be disinhibited and violent. And so what do we do? We banned lead in petrol, right? Now, you can see my flat through your screen. I still paint my... We still live in painted houses. We still have cars with petrol, but they don't have lead in them. In the same way, we can have social media... It doesn't have this attention-destroying effect. And the way it was explained to me in Silicon Valley is very simple. People like Aza Raskin, a key figure in the history of Silicon Valley, said to me, we should just ban the current business model. Just ban it. Just, just like we don't allow lead in petrol, should say, you're not allowed to have a business which is based on secretly tracking people in order to figure out the weaknesses in their attention and sell that to the highest bidder. Just ban it. And I was like, okay, but what happens the next day? <laughs> Let's say we ban it. Day after that, do I open Facebook and it just says sorry, we've all gone fishing? He said, no, of course not. Facebook would have to adopt a different business model. And there's lots of business models they can adopt. One would be subscription, like Netflix, right? That's one possible model. Another model would be and um, one that we all are familiar with. Um, think about anyone listening to this. You're pretty near a sewer, right? And we all collectively own the sewer pipes together because before we had sewage pipes, there was shit in the streets and we got cholera, right? So we all built the sewers together. I mean, we paid for them all to be built together and we own them together. It might be just like we own the sewage pipes together. We want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the kind of mental equivalent of cholera, the attentional equivalent of cholera. There's all sorts of models. But the most important thing is once there's a different business model, The incentives completely change. The incentive is no longer, how do I figure out how to invade Meg's attention? The incentive after that becomes, once you've got this different model is, what does Meg want? You're not the product they're selling anymore. You're the customer. What does Meg want? Oh, Meg wants to be able to pay attention. Okay. Let's design our app. So it helps her pay attention. Oh, Meg wants to see her friends. Okay. Let's have a button that she can push to tell her when her friends are available. Once the incentives change, the model will change. But for for as long as the incentives are where they are, of course, they're going to carry on invading our attention, right? And it's going to get worse and worse as the technology becomes more sophisticated if we don't deal with this core problem.
0: Oh, I love how you've highlighted that. And just to give people that window or that door into the idea that it can be designed a different way. It is possible that any social media could even have a thing that after 15 minutes, you know, you've been on it for 15 minutes, do you want to continue to scroll? But the way that it's designed is that's never finished and it's a bottom bottomless pit. So there are things that are possible and starting to think about that and starting to notice that we can do so much within our control and yet the system has a different Intention, they have a different outcome, and they want our eyes on their product. And so, until that shifts, there's always going to be attention there.
1: Exactly, and we don't have to tolerate this being done to us and our children. Right? James Williams, the guy I mentioned before, said to me, "You know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The web is less than 10,000 days old." Right. We can change how these things work if we want to. And I I know when I say that, some people totally understandably think, oh, God, but big tech is so powerful. And whenever I think, and this is only one of the 12 factors invading our attention, but when people say that to me, I always think about something, and I would urge other people to think about this in their own families. I think about my grandmothers. So I'm 42 years old. I'm nearly 43. When my grandmothers were 42, it was 1963. And I think about my grandmother's lives in that year. So both my grandmothers had left school when they were 13, even though the men in their family stayed on at school because no one gave a shit about girls going to school. And my grandmother, my Swiss grandmother, she loved to draw and paint. And they told her, stop that. You're going to get married. Shut up. In 1963, um, my grandmothers weren't allowed to have bank accounts it was legal for their husbands to rape them. In practice, it was legal for their husbands to beat them because the police never intervened in that. Uh, One of my grandmothers was on a mountain in Switzerland, living in a wooden farmhouse. She wasn't even allowed to vote, right? In the entire world, there was no country, no company, no police force run by a woman, nowhere, right? And then I think about my niece who's 17 who loves to draw like her great grandmother did uh, although my niece never sadly never met my grandmother and when my niece loved to draw we all said oh you should go to art school you're really good at this right even the most i know we've still got a long way to go and i know how annoying it is for a man to sort of mansplain this the gap between my grandmother's lives and my niece's life is staggering how did that gap happen it banded cuz it happened because lots of ordinary women banded together and said, we're not taking this shit anymore. No, you're not doing this to us anymore. Right. And when we get daunted and think, God, big tech is powerful. I say to people, big tech is not a hundredth as powerful as men were in 1963. Men controlled literally everything. Like that's not an exaggeration, literally everything, every institution of power in the entire world. And they had ever since it had been, they'd been created. Right. Um, my grandmother's generation didn't give up, right? That, that great phrase that's the, the Australian group get up uses, uh, that was founded after the victory of John, you know, the, the re-election of John Howard, we, we're not going to give up. We, we're not going to give up. We get up, you know, they, my grandmothers didn't give up. They got up and they, and they, and that generation and the generation of women after them and the generation of women today carried on fighting and have made incredible advances. So all sorts of things are possible to check these pa- these forces that are destroying our attention and focus want us to believe that they are invincible and we are weak and we've got to change our psychology around this we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of king zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table we are the free citizens of democracies we own our minds and we've got to take them back and i think just like there needs to be, and still needs to be, a feminist movement to reclaim women's right to their bodies and their lives. I think we have to have a movement to reclaim our minds an attention. Movement, and I mean, I'm slightly joking in the book when I say we should call it attention rebellion. But we need, you know, a, a, an attention rebellion to reclaim our minds, both at an individual level and at a collective level.
0: Yes, absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly with you, Johan. And reading your book and every 12, every one of the 12 causes, uh, wow, like the depth of how it's eroding our attention. You know, I really encourage people to read the book. So we've just really talked about, you know, the tech, but we're also talking about the crippling of flow states, the rise of physical and mental exhaustion. It's really hard for people to be able to sustain reading the idea of mind wandering, and that's something that I've really taken on to consciously bring in more mind wandering into my life because I found that I was filling every minute of my day with consuming, consuming podcasts, information, books, something to actually give my time and my brain just to wander and thinking about even this idea of pollution and our food and, so much in this book. I'm like, wow, like the depth is just in one point like completely overwhelming. A friend said at one stage, how's the book going? And I said, oh, um, it kind of reminds me of some of those remedial massages where they just find a spot <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's sore, and like you sort of breathe your way through it and you get through and then like, oh, there's another spot. Oh, gee. <laughs> And so by by the end of the book, like I was feeling, I was feeling all of these
1: spots.
0: (laughs) And I was also feeling like this is a call to action. You know, we need to take this seriously and not just let our attention just slowly erode away. I cannot tell you, Johan, how many people I've spoken to. And I said, oh, what are you reading? And I said the topic, I said, oh, Stolen Focus. And they're just like, yeah, I can't. I can't focus anymore, Meg. You know, I get so many emails. I don't even read them. I just scan through them. So it is such a big thing. And I really encourage everybody to go and read the book and look at every one of the 12 causes and see there are slight changes that we can make on an individual level. And I'm hoping that as we make more changes on an individual level, then we'll have a bit more attention and concentration to be able to collaborate in communities and keep that, moving forward you know Johan I really love the way that you write you know I read a lot Mm. and um, the way that you write is so it's so unique in the sense that you have serious research here you have spoken to some really impressive people and then you'll put it into a way that then I'll be find myself giggling so I'll just have a laugh (laughs) you know when you're talking about the drop in Um, the 10% IQ and then you're talking about well you're better off probably um, smoking some weed (laughs) like it just puts it all in perspective and I just think that is such a gift so I encourage people to really read Stolen Focus and if you haven't read Lost Connections, Johan's previous book, you have to go and read it because you know it's another absolute gem and To wrap this conversation up, Johan, I'd love to invite you to um, finish four sentences. Are you up for that?
1: Okay, (laughs) right. I can do it. I can do it. Okay. Um, Paying attention.
0: Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I am inspired by.
1: I'm inspired by someone I know who I've been spending a lot of time with for a long time. I'm not meant to talk about this, so don't let me talk about it too much, but for the last 10 years I've been researching a book about the people who live in the drainage tunnels beneath Las Vegas. And I have a friend called Shay, Sandra Tingloff, uh, who lived in the tunnels for many years and a friend called Rob Banghart, who lived in the tunnel for many years. Um, I think Rob might be the most extraordinary person I've ever met. Rob lived in the tunnels um, for a long time. Um, the, the, it's important uh, to explain people they're not the, they're, the, they're not the sewage tunnels. They're water drainage tunnels. They're for the water drainage. Um, and and huge numbers of people live in these tunnels because Vegas has no welfare state. And Rob, four years ago, Rob, um, Rob was a dealer as well as living in the tunnels, um, kind of very low-level dealer. And one day, a group of men, rival dealers who lived in another tunnel um, went up to Rob and hit him in the head with an axe and smashed his skull open and, and dragged him to the railway tracks and left him on the railway tracks for a train to run him over. Unfortunately, someone found him just before the train hit him, would have hit him. And uh, Rob, it took him six months to learn to walk again. And now Rob runs a charity called Shine Light that he goes back into the tunnels to give people food and water and medical care and to help them get rehab, whatever they need. And one day I was with Rob um, in the tunnels and this woman called Heather, who'd been there when he lived there, came up to him and said, Oh, I heard, I saw you gave stuff to the guys in that tunnel over there. I'm really impressed that you do that. That's really impressive. And Rob's like, Oh, it's just the right thing to do. I didn't really think about it. And much later I asked about it. I discovered that the people that were the people in that tunnel were the people who tried to kill Rob by smashing his head with an ax and leaving him on the train tracks. And I said to a friend of Rob's, Paul, why does Rob do that? And Paul said, well, we ask forgiveness of others, so we have to give forgiveness ourselves. And I thought, wow, I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm writing that part of the book at the moment. But yeah, I'm impressed by Rob. I'm impressed by Shay, who lived in the tunnels, is a wonderful person. I'm impressed by so many of the people I got to know there. Yeah, I'm impressed by them.
0: <laughs> oh, and now we are too. We are so inspired by those true stories. And when life feels hard,
1: um God well. When life feels hard, remember that it's hard for lots of other people as well, and when you feel like shit, you can almost always make someone else feel better, even if it's something as simple as just even if you feel so shit you can't get out of your bed, text someone you know to remind them of something good they've done in their lives, you know. So when, yeah, you can almost always, even when you're absolutely at your lowest, you can almost always make someone else feel better. And the best way to make yourself feel better is to make someone else feel better.
0: Such, yes, so beautiful. And an underrated skill is? Uh,
1: An underrated skill is listening. You know, I had this moment for the book I was for Stolen Focus. I was, um, uh, as you know, I went completely without the internet and smartphone for a month, for three months. And I had this moment that really, it was a kind of epiphany for me. I was sitting in this, I went to this place called Provincetown, and there's a a place called Cafe Heaven. And I was sitting there, and there were these two young guys, they're about, I guess, about in their mid 20s. He sat next to me and it was very clear they wanted, they want a date they'd met on an app. Like I was blatantly eavesdropping. although I was pretending to read David Copperfield, but I could eavesdropping. I was very clear. This is the first time they'd met and they sat for a really long time. It was, it was riveting because they sat there and spoke for about two hours. In my memory, it might have be been less than that. And they did not listen to each other once. They didn't ask each other any questions. They didn't, at one point, one of them mentioned in passing that his brother had died recently. And the other one didn't even say, I'm so sorry. What happened? Right. Like they just, if they had met up and they'd each just been reading out each other's Facebook walls to each other, they would have had exactly the same alternating. They would have had exactly the same conversation. So listening, it's a real, a real skill. Right. And, um, properly listening to people and and a a, a skill that is atrophying I'm afraid because of a lot of the things we're talking about
0: for sure and the final one is I am looking forward to
1: oh I'm looking forward to it's funny with all my other books a moment I'm looking forward to a moment that happened with all my other books which is and maybe this won't happen this time and if it doesn't I'll be gutted but um with every book I've ever written and it's usually quite a long time afterwards. It's not in the first month or two, like four months, five months, six months later, I will get contacted by someone who's read the book and is using it in some way that I could not possibly have imagined at the start, right? So with lost connections. I got contacted about, it was two years after it came out. I suddenly started getting loads of emails and messages on social media from people in Kazakhstan. And I was like, it's a bit odd. What's going on there? And then I got, someone sent me a link. What happened is there was a doctor in Kazakhstan who was giving lectures every night on Instagram Live where he was just telling people about each chapter of Lost Connections and the causes of depression, right? And it turned out that the chapter in there about surviving childhood trauma and sexual abuse caused this huge debate in Kazakhstan because they just never talk about that. And he was a quite reputable doctor. So it was kind of breaking into taboo. I thought, God, when I wrote Lost Connections, I was not picturing... A debate about sexual abuse in Kazakhstan, right? That is not like, that is so far. Or another example would be: I wrote a book called *Chasing the Screen*, which is about uh, partly about addiction and um, the war on drugs, and um, and I got contacted because we had we had a lot of addiction in my family, which is why I wrote it. And um, I got contacted a good three years after the book came out by an incredible person. So I should preface this by saying your listeners can probably guess this. I'm a gay left-wing atheist, right? I got contacted by a woman called Christina Demp. Christina is an evangelical Republican Christian in, in, in Mississippi. And Christina is so opposed to abortion that she fosters children in the Mississippi foster care system. Because, you know, she puts her money where her mouth is. She's like, if you're going to say people have to have, should have their babies, we've got to actually help the babies, right? And the children, they become... So Christina started to get to, because in the Mississippi system, as I'm sure in Australia and everywhere, a huge proportion of the kids in care are kids whose parents had addiction problems. So Christina starts to get to know these mothers, right? And she's like, oh, I just think because she's a really nice person. She's like, why didn't anyone help these m- women much earlier? so they didn't get to the point where their children were so traumatized and had to be taken away from them. So she starts learning about addiction. She watched a talk I gave, and then she read my book, Chasing the Scream and lots of other things. And she has now set up a group of evangelical Christians in Mississippi who are fighting to end the war on drugs and decriminalize all drugs and use that instead to help people with addiction problems. Right. And I've become really good friends with Christina. I love her. We met up and she's an amazing person. And I thought, God, when I was writing Chasing the Scream, if you'd said to me a group of evangelical Christians in Mississippi are going to be inspired by your book to, to do anything other than burn it, I would have been like, all right, mate. You know, that happened, right? And it and to me, that's such a lesson as well about, and this relates also to the problems with social media we're talking about, we are so tribalized, right? We are so polarized in unhealthy ways. And maybe even the joke I made about Tony Abbott at the start is like a little symptom of that. We've got to monitor it in all of us. You know, we are being amped up to demonize people who don't agree with us, to hate them, to simplify them, to not see them as the complex human beings they are. Um, and, and yeah, so I'm looking forward to whatever the equivalent of that Kazakh doctor or the evangelical Christians in Mississippi which is, I'm sure is someone I can't even imagine is going to come along and read this book in some weird way that I can't think of and is going to do something with it. I hope so. Maybe maybe, maybe no one will read it and it will go to shit. But, you know, um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's always to me the nicest bit.
0: That is so exciting. You know, I've never written a book or anything like that and I feel like just hearing those stories, I'm on this journey to like, oh, I wonder how it's going to pop up in the world. I wonder how it's going to help because I think that once we get involved in these topics, we get quite invested in it because of the potential. You know, all of your books, it's about the potential of the human spirit, you know, with that chasing the scream. What's the potential when we're not in that cycle of addiction with lost connections? What's the potential once we're deeply connected to ourselves? And this incredible masterpiece, it's like a work of art slash remedial massage, is saying to us, <laughs> what is our potential when we're not distracted, when we're not lost in our own world, when we can see the night sky, when we can see that grand light. There is so much potential and I love that that's what you're bringing to the world. You're bringing us a new possible future. So thank you, Johan, for being on this podcast and thank you for the work you do in the world. It is so, so meaningful and so impactful. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. And this will sound an kind of ironic form of thanking you but i really appreciate the attention you paid to the book i can really tell and i'm really grateful for that and i'm really moved by it and um i meant to say or my publishers will tase me um i meant to read out this thing but it makes me sound like such a twat i can't do it but if you want more information about the book where do you can get the physical book the e-book or the audio book if you go to www.stolenfocusbook.com where you can find out what a range of people have said about the book from Hillary Clinton to Stephen Fry Um, on the website. You can also listen for free to interviews with loads of the experts that we've talked about and loads of other people we haven't talked about. So there's audio of all those people. Thank you so much, Meg. I really enjoyed that. Cheers.
0: Oh, it was just absolutely awesome. Thanks so much, Johan.
1: What a pleasure.
0: What an incredible conversation. Johan is calling us to action. What we covered in this conversation is just the tip of the iceberg. I went back over Stolen Focus and I brought some facts for you to bring home this idea that we are in an attention crisis and we really need to reclaim our attention. The average CEO of a Fortune 500 company gets just 28 uninterrupted minutes a day. The average American worker is distracted roughly every three minutes and the fastest rising cause of death in the world is distracted driving. As Johan says in the book, I realised that my desire to absorb a tsunami of information without losing my ability to focus was like my desire to eat McDonald's every day and stay trim. We cannot keep going the way we're going. We cannot keep consuming so much at the rate that we are. Our brains are not designed for it. We need to slow down and focus on what really matters. To learn more about Stolen Focus, visit www.stolenfocusbook.com where you can listen to all the interviews for free. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. Number 1, from this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number 2, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? If any of the topics covered during this conversation resonate with you, you will love my signature well-being program, Energy by Design. Energy by Design is a 10-week well-being program for educators that are ready and willing to experience more energy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. In episode five, I chat with big-hearted educator Shannon Tracy about his Energy by Design experience. So if you want to know what it's really like to learn and work with me, listen to episode five. In this round, we are going to be focusing on our ability to focus and creating conscious spaces to think deeply about things that matter. I am so excited about this program and the next round kicks off Monday, the 31st of January and I am so excited to see what we can co-create together. To keep in the loop and with everything that I'm up to, subscribe to the Thought of the Week. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and please share with your family, friends and colleagues. I believe that in order for us to move forward as a collective, everybody needs to do their bit and it's conversations like these that can help move the collective forward. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing well-being education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.